0: Hearts, Lord Jesus, to the word that you would give to this church. Thank you that though you're the King of kings, the Son of man, and that you wear priestly garments, you walk among the lampstands and you speak to us. So let us listen. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. And turn to Revelation 2 in your bulletins or Bibles. Last week we uh, wrapped up a series called This Is My Body. It was a series from 1 Corinthians, really focusing on how God reconciles us to each other. We might even call this horizontal reconciliation. How does God unite and reconcile his people so that they actually become his body? And we're shifting now in Lent to a new series in Revelation uh, 2 and 3, focusing more on horizontal reconciliation? How are we reconciled to God? How can we uh, embrace the reconciliation with God that Jesus offers? And for the resources we need to answer that question, we're, we're exploring Revelation 2 and 3 because Jesus, through John, gave seven different letters to seven churches in Asia Minor that were recorded in scripture so that those letters could continue to reverberate and speak to every church in every century including ours. Um, so, uh, uh, these churches are referred to, sorry, these churches are referred to as lampstands, and meaning that they're the light of the world, that, that they're God's chosen light to Asia Minor. And the closer the lampstands listen to the voice of the Son of Man, the brighter they will burn in their context. And the same is true for us. The closer we listen to the Son of Man who walks in our midst, the brighter we will burn as a lampstand in Uptown and in Chicago. One author I respect a lot asks this question. He starts out his book with this question. What happens to love after the wedding? What happens to love after the wedding? He's, he wrote his book after counseling thousands of couples And he noticed that there was a sharp drop off or a gradual drop off of love after the joy of the wedding. And he's essentially asking how is it that love between people can burn as hot as a bonfire and then eventually dwindle down to an ash heap that barely glows? How does that happen? How does it happen that a bonfire is eventually snuffed out entirely, where there's no light at all? It can happen to any romance. It can happen to any friendship. Wherever there's love, there is the potential for love to die. So what happens to love after the wedding? Why does it die? And think about the best marriage that you know about. A marriage that you look up to that you're like, oh man, I, if I'm ever married, I, or if I am married, I want my marriage to look like that marriage. Let me tell you that that marriage is but a metaphor for the marriage between Christ and his church. It's just a metaphor for the marriage between Christ and his church. The union between Jesus and his church is the alpha and omega of every marriage to ever exist. Jesus has some insights on marriage that we need to appropriate. He knows why marriages struggle. He knows why they die out. Jesus is an incredibly attentive husband because he loves his bride. He loved Ephesus in the 21st century and he loves Emmanuel Anglican in the 21st century. He's the first love, he's the true love of every church. To ever exist. And when this watchful husband sizes up his marriage to Ephesus, he's concerned. He's concerned. He sees the bonfire dimming. He senses her heart growing cold. And every attentive husband can sense the heart of his wife going cold. And he will plead with her to return. You have abandoned the love you had at first. He will warn. Unless things change, I will remove your lampstand, he says. The affection between us needs to be rekindled soon, or our marriage could die. Our marriage could die unless something changes. As it relates to Jesus' relationship with any church, including ours, he has a very clear idea for what happens to love after the wedding. And he has a plan for how that love can be rekindled. He knows why the bonfire dies out. And he knows how to make the bonfire burn hot again in the church. So let's pay close attention to Jesus' words. As we unpack this letter, there's going to be things that we notice where we realize that we are in the same boat as Ephesus. Different church, different time. Similar temptations, similar dangers. Our love for God can be dampened. Our love for God can die, die completely. And our love for God is called to grow hotter than it is right now. So let's listen to two things that dampen love and two things that make it burn hotter. The first reality that can dampen our love for God is simply this, hard work. Hard work can dampen our love for God and for someone else we love. Jesus looks at his bride and says this, verse 2, the first part of verse 2, I know your works. (laughs) I know your works. I'm watching you work. I know your toil, he says. I know your patient endurance. And in verse 3 he says this, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. You've endured patiently and you haven't grown weary. Ephesus, I can see it. My bride, I, I've been watching you. You're walking with a slump because you're bent over with all the work. There's, there's bags under your eyes. That there's concern on your face because you've lost sleep. And, and you've worked deep into the night. I can see that you're weary from the trials. You've soldiered on. When everyone else quit, you kept going. And it's all for my name's sake, he says. It's all for my name's sake. You are working hard for me. And I can see that. And this is a great irony that Jesus is pointing out. It's true for his relationship with the church, but it's also true for any marriage. It's also true for any friendship, quite frankly. Hard work is an outcome of true love all the time. If you love someone truly, you will work hard with them and for them. Consider a marriage. When God brings a man and a woman together for holy marriage, the work is just beginning at the wedding. That's just the start of the work. You think it's hard to plan a wedding? Try having kids, but that's the call on any marriage. To come together not just for a joyful wedding, but to come together to communicate, which takes a lot of work. To come together to combine finances, which takes a lot of work. To come together to combine, uh, to, to, to combine all your stuff into one house and then learn how to coexist without fighting, in fact, for your love to grow stronger. That's a lot of work. And then when you start having kids, the work is exponentially uh, more intense. Hard work isn't bad, it's a natural outcome of love. But that work that originates from love can then dampen love. Ask any couple here with a few kids about their extravagant plans for Valentine's Day and they'll (laughs) laugh in your face. You know, the work of the church is glorious. It's beautiful. And can you imagine being part of the launch team in Ephesus? Can you imagine? Christianity itself is new, okay? It's electric, and it's spreading all over Asia Minor. And the Holy Spirit is drenching the Ephesians with the love of God, which they've never truly and fully experienced before. People are telling amazing stories of how Jesus set them free, and they're getting baptized, and there's rejoicing. Jews and Greeks are becoming part of the same family. Slaves and slave owners are becoming part of the same family and learning a new identity. And the culture's taking note. There's there's revival starting to spread from Ephesus. It's going all over Asia Minor. And you have Paul as your church planter. You have Timothy helping you get started. Things are really popping in Ephesus. What a privilege it would have been to participate in all of that, to to be the hands that baptize people, to to, to see people set free. What an amazing, exciting thing it would have been to show up when they worshiped. The Spirit of God is pouring out. But if you're going to participate in that work, so are you. You're going to pour out if you're going to participate in that work. You've got to make disciples of Jesus. That's hard work. You've got to train up leaders. That's hard work too. You've got to help people discover and exercise their spiritual gifts to grow up into them. It's a long process. It's a really beautiful process, but it's a long process and it's a lot of work. There's teaching, there's instruction, instructing, there's rebuking, and then there's the organizational work of, of eating together and gathering together and how is this all going to work even as the empire's starting to crack down on our meetings and crack down on our faith all of this in a heavy, uh, heavily trafficked uh, urban center of Ephesus where there's always people coming and going, always people coming and going, and so you're always having to deal with turnover. Meanwhile, you're, battle- you're doing battle with spiritual darkness, and you're enduring oppression from Rome. When love leads to hard work, <laughs> hard work can slowly replace love altogether. You can get so highly enamored with the fruit of your love for God or the fruit of your love for your spouse that you stop tending to the original fire. You stop tending to the original lampstand. You stop tending to the original spark. Some married couples send their kids away to college and all of a sudden their empty nest... Nesters, they look at each other and they go, wait a second, why are we married again? Because somehow, slowly, all of their love got transferred to their kids and they never tended to the original spark. The same can be true inside the church. We can get so enamored with the work of the church that we forget the Lord of the church. We forget that he loved us first. Church work can soak up all the affection that we originally had for God. Hard work is an outcome of love that can dampen love. And Jesus is a good and attentive husband to point it out. The second reality that can dampen our love for God, not just hard work, but also conflict. Conflict can dampen love. Like hard work, conflict is necessary when you love somebody. It's a, it's a healthy outcome of true love. Relationships that have no conflict are either not very close or they're not very healthy. Um, If you love someone, you're going to have to have hard conversations with them. You're going to have to direct hard conversations and go through the conflict rather than around the conflict. And that's hard. If you avoid those slow conversations, you can just expect slow drift slow drift, slow and tragic drift, as hard work and conflict work together to pull you apart, to completely dampen the bonfire. What's more, you might need to engage in protective conflict to protect your love. No, you may not hit on my girlfriend. Um, No, you may not spend time alone with my child. No, you may not speak ill of my friend like that. No. And that's a draining conversation as well. Jesus says this in the second part of verse 2. He says this, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. And then later in verse 6 he'll say this, You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let's talk about this for a minute. The Ephesian leaders had a thankless job. <laughs> that wasn't going to win them any friends. They were, for the sake of Jesus, they, they were doing the thankless job of identifying people who were bringing in toxic, false beliefs about God Beliefs about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Beliefs about what it means to follow Jesus. They were bringing in toxic teachings and the leaders of the Ephesian church had to go, no, we have to work through this. We got got to test this. Is this really orthodox? Is this really from Jesus? Is this really belong in our church? And then they had to go, you know what? We've tested it. We've discerned. And it's just not. Not only is it off a little bit, it's going to damage people's lives. It's going to endanger their souls. You're not just saying things that are, that are off base. You're actually a false apostle, a false teacher. And at the end of the process, they had to, in fact, remove those teachers from their church. One of the cruelest things that you could ever do to a church is to teach her false things about her father, false things about her Lord, false things about her identity. That's one of the meanest, cruelest things you could ever do to a church. Bishop uh, uh, Fitzsimmons Allison wrote a book called The Cruelty of Heresy, where he actually takes case examples from church history after Ephesus and went, okay, when people didn't do what they chose to do in Ephesus, how did it turn out? And it was always bad. It was always cruel. It was always hard. The cruelty of heresy. Where churches paid a high price because their leaders wouldn't do the hard work of testing true and false teaching. Now we have a hard time with this. We have a hard time with this because we don't want to be overly scrupulous. We want to have a generous orthodoxy. Some of us have a hard time with the idea that there can be false teaching. But we can see in America how false teaching has really hurt the church. In examples that are just beyond our lifetime, churches taught that races should be separate. Churches supported the idea that people should be euthanized. Churches supported and taught and continue to teach the idea that if you love God enough, if you have enough faith, you'll have all the health and wealth that you'll ever need, that you'll be blessed. That teaching hurts people. That teaching leads the church astray. And loving leaders will point it out and say, no, that must not be taught. No, that is false. And doing that takes an emotional toll. Doing that can dampen your love for God. If you're doing that on God's behalf, it will take a toll. It will leave you feeling sad. It will leave you feeling tired and perhaps disillusioned. You know, after a while, and this is where Maybe we've seen this happen, and so, um, and so we're cautious about, about contending for the truth. But contending for the truth can transform our love for God um, into just a love for being right. We just love being right. It just feels so good to be right. We get smug. Uh, our, our childlike tenderness just gets covered in cynical calluses. Our vulnerability, which is a gift from God, gets covered in self protective dragon scales. We don't trust anybody anymore. We don't like anybody anymore. We're, we've just become a discernment blogger looking for people to criticize. <laughs> in the words of one preacher, there's a spirit that contends for faith that's in conflict with faith. There's an anger against impurity that can be quite impure. Conflict is an outcome of love that can dampen love. Now what happens when you take hard work and you take conflict and you let them accumulate over the years? There's a word for it and perhaps some of you are feeling it even this morning. It's the word fatigue. Fatigue. Fatigue is when you can't really take another step in the direction of the one you love. Fatigue is when you are at mile 23.8 and you are ready to collapse. You are hitting a wall. Fatigue is when the candle is burned all the way down to the nub. You can't even light the wick anymore because there's not enough wax left over. And fatigue is a serious danger to love for God or for anybody else. And the church in Ephesus was right on the precipice of fatigue. They were right on the precipice of burnout. Jesus says in verse 4, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. When you're abandoning your first love, that's a sign that there's likely some fatigue involved. Vince Lombardi once said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. And we might look at verse 4 and say, well, fatigue also makes false lovers of us all. Fatigue can make false lovers of us all. When we're fatigued, we're in danger of abandoning our first love. And what does that look like? You know, it looks like giving ourselves over to binging. When we're fatigued, uh, the immediate comforts look so much better than they would if you weren't fatigued. uh, Chocolate doesn't ask questions. Chocolate (laughs) understands. (laughs) I'm going to love chocolate right now. We binge on chocolate, on food, alcohol, pornography, prescription drugs, because they make us feel a sense of feeling loved. They take away the bite of fatigue. That's One way that we can be false lovers. But also, we become susceptible when we're fatigued to advances of a person who's not our true love, whether they're imaginary or real. Someone we're not called to love, but we might turn in their direction because we're so fatigued. Or you know what? You know what most of us do? We just go numb. When we're fatigued, we just go numb. We stop feeling things. We shut off our heart. We shut down our capacity to love. It hurts too much. I'm done. False lovers abandon the love they had at first. They just say, forget it. It's too hard. I'm never trusting again. I'm never loving again. Fatigue makes false lovers of us all. So what must be done to restore our love for God? If we're fatigued, how can we recover our passion for our first love? This doesn't come from trying harder. It comes from, from two instructions that Jesus will give, which we receive the power to do that from Him and His Holy Spirit. The first thing He calls them to do is to remember If hard work and conflict dim love, dampen love, remembering restores our first love. Jesus says this in verse 5 Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. Jesus wants them to remember the way it used to be, not from nostalgia, not from worshiping the old methods. He remembers what it was like between them, and he wants them to remember too. He's not trying to shame them. He's trying to save the marriage. He's trying to restore the bonfire. Let's remember how it was in the beginning. Let's play the old videos. Let's break out the old scrapbook. Let's dance to that song. Clear your calendar Ephesus. We're getting away for the weekend. We're getting away just to remember. Ephesus, do you remember the beginning of your love for God? Do you remember, oh church? Do you remember the hope that filled your heart when you heard that God is rich in mercy for the first time? When when you heard that he made you alive together with Christ because of the great love with which he has loved you? Do you remember the hope that filled your heart when you heard that for the first time? Do you remember Ephesus confessing all your sins, renouncing all of your idols, and just feeling the spiritual oppression lift from your shoulders and you were finally free? Do you remember Ephesus when Paul told you that God had blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the high places, and that it was not of your own works? that all was a gift and it was all yours? Do you remember what it felt like to be emerged in the waters of baptism, feeling completely covered in the love of God? Ephesus, do you remember how much freedom you had when you stopped sharing your bed with your neighbors, but you started sharing your table and just about everything else with your neighbors? Do you remember when you took communion That one time and and you got a glimpse of the height and depth and breadth and length of the love I have for you. Do you remember that time? Do you remember the dreams I gave you for your family? Do you remember the dreams I gave you for your church? Do you remember the dreams I gave you for your city? Do you remember Ephesus? Because I remember. I'll never forget pouring out my Holy Spirit on you. I'll never forget taking away your shame. I'll never forget the first time you said yes to me. I'll never forget how much we rejoiced in heaven that day when you said yes. I'll never forget, Ephesus, the first time you trusted me with your stuff. That was a special moment. I'll never forget when you spoke a word of encouragement in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll never forget when you showed courage and you fought your first battle in my name. I was watching, and I'll never forget. I'll never forget the moment, Ephesus, that I shined on you, and I saw you wake up for the first time. And you were mine. I'll never forget, because you're my bride. Let us remember and speak of our first love. Let's remember and worship the God who has entered history, our history. Who has invaded lovingly our memory? Who can be found here on earth in our story? Remembering what he has done because he doesn't change. He's been burning hot with love from the very beginning. Let us fix our gaze on the Lord through memory. Jesus calls us to remember. And he also calls us to do the works you did at first. Remembering is one way for the bonfire to grow hot again. Doing the works you did at first, as Jesus says in verse 5, is another way. And what were the works that Ephesus did at first? Well, we don't know exactly. Um, it appears that Jesus knows that they're going to know, which is kind of an intimate thing, isn't it? Hey, you know those things that you used to do? Let's do those again. They know somehow, and that's kind of beautiful that we don't know exactly what it is. We don't know the activity that bound the heart of the Ephesian church to the heart of God. But we know that it wasn't simply work hard for God, learn more, do more, learn more, do more. We know it wasn't that. We know it wasn't fending off heretics for God. And Jesus commends them for that. But he wants something else, something that will signify a return to the love they had at first. You know, we know from the Christian tradition and from other parts of Scripture that God fills us with love when we pour out our hearts to Him, like the psalmist did. God fills us with love when we come to Him not as a good soldier, although sometimes that's necessary because he has work for us to do. But when we come to him as a child, saying, "Dad, I need love, uh, throne of grace. I-, I need grace and mercy today. I need grace and mercy this morning." Coming to him to get filled. Coming to him to, 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 with the same posture that we go to chocolate, or Netflix. I I'm, I need to be filled. I'm I'm hurting. It hurts. I'm tired. I need to be held, I need to be fathered, I need to be forgiven, I need to be understood. I need to feel you, Jesus, sympathizing with my weaknesses. Would you just do that? I I don't have special things to give you other than just my need. We know that consistently the Lord loves to answer those prayers by pouring out His Holy Spirit upon us, which will fill us with His love. Dad, I need you. Dad, I want you. When we clock into spiritual activities as a good soldier, that's one thing. But sometimes life with God is something different and all we need is child uh, the affection that a child needs. Consider how this might impact our prayer and fasting. You know, you might um, fast just to see what it's like and then totally hate it and realize how hard it is. And, and, and that's, that's one thing. It can remind you how much you need grace. It's another thing to fast, to say, God, I'm hungry. I'm hungry for love. I'm love hungry. So fill me. Even as I feel these hunger pains, let that actually be so much lighter than the reality of the love that you're filling me with right now. What what if that impacted the way we prayed? Instead of praying of, I gotta go through my list and, you know, pray for all the things and try to get my prayer request answered by pretending to be pious. What if we just came to prayer as a child? You know, one spiritual father um, prays like this. He'll take a phrase from scripture like, I love you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And, And one of the things he says is that, you know, for the first 10, 20 minutes or so, it's like totally cold, totally cold. You know, the fire is not glowing at all. But he just lets this phrase connect him to God and he listens and he's silent before God and the Lord begins to fill him with love gradually and surely, slowly. That's one of the ways that God works. We just sit in his presence and we take a phrase from scripture that will just help us connect with him and we listen and we sit and we let him do his work. Perhaps you're in a season where you feel far from your first love. You feel fatigued. You feel dry. And it's starting to morph into something worse. It's starting to morph into cynicism. It's starting to uh, form into addiction. Perhaps underneath that cynicism is just pain and fatigue because you don't want to get hurt. I want to encourage you Today, in the presence of Holy Church, to begin opening yourself up to the Lord and ask for His Holy Spirit to begin, pour, to begin pouring Himself out upon you, even today. If you want to remember your baptism, if you've been baptized, go to a prayer minister today and ask them to pour some holy water on you, which is a way for us to be reminded of our baptism. Let it be a symbol for you of how much God loves you. Let it wash your imagination from the cynicism and the fatigue. He will satisfy you. This is a promise. He will satisfy you. Yes, it's a process to get, to get back into our first love. Love is like that. Love is a process. Love is not magic. But Jesus Christ gave his life for you. He bled for you. And not just for the whole world, but for you. To give you his Holy Spirit and to give you his love. And it will satisfy. To the one who conquers, Jesus says to Ephesus, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. He's referencing back the tree that was promised to Adam and Eve as this is the satisfying tree. This is the satisfying tree. Eat of this tree. And I will satisfy you. I will fill your bellies. And it will be more than you can eat. It will be more than you can handle. At some point, you might have to tell me to stop because you're so full of love. Prayer and fasting, like a child, is one of the works that we as a church did at first. This is how we got started. We prayed and fasted our way into experiencing God's love through the local church. Here's another work that we as a church did at first. Not just prayer and fasting, but parties and hospitality. You know, at some point, God's love will fill you to the point where you want to share your life with others. People inside the church, people outside the church, creative things, beautiful things. You want to share your, the, the life and beauty and love of God with others simply by opening up your home, simply by opening up your table. Cooking a meal in the name of Jesus, throwing a party in the name of Jesus, making beautiful art, beautiful music in the name of Jesus. One way to combine prayer and fasting and parties and hospitality is have an apartment blessing. Have a house blessing if you haven't had one already. I'll show up or another leader will show up from Emmanuel and we'll party with you and we'll pray with you and we'll devote your space to God. We'll remember our first love together by doing the things we did at first. Let us now return to our first love. Let us now open ourselves up to the Son of Man who wants to restore the bonfire of our love for God or give it to us for the very first time. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.